Welcome to the Spotlight series presented by Surviving Society. In these episodes, Chantel and Tiso take a step back and hand over hosting to academics, activists and grassroots community organisations. These are a range of episodes positioned locally and globally to tell the stories that need to be heard. Enjoy. Welcome to the Surviving Society Spotlight series. We're in Hawaii for the American Studies Association. I'm Rihanna Walker. I'm going to be guest hosting this podcast episode with Dr. Francesca Saban. I'm a lecturer in Digital Media Studies and director of the programme in the BA Media, Journals and Culture at Cardiff University. Wonderful. And with us today, we have the fantastic Dr. Yamara Figuera, who is at... Um, yes, I'm assistant professor of Global Afro Diaspora Studies at Michigan State University. Okay. And we're all together at this annual conference in sunny Hawaii. We're Honolulu. On Honolulu. We're very, very glad to be here in the sunshine. Okay, <laughs> so let's just talk a little bit about what we do. Cheska, do you want to start off? So uh, a bit about what I do, broadly speaking, my work focuses on issues to do with identity, intersecting inequality, ideology, media and the marketplace. In particular, I focused in recent years on digital media experiences, and the media experiences of black women in Britain, how they connect to and are sometimes disconnected from a broader black digital diasporic dialogue and anything really that connects to issues related to structural oppression and consumer culture is something that I'm always interested in. Please don't forget to plug your books. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm in the process of, of finalising my book on the digital lives of black women in Britain, which will be out next year, 2020. Um, I'm also co-editor of a collection, To Exist is to Resist, Black Feminism in Europe, with Professor Akuga Majulu from University of Warwick, which was released this year with Pluto Press. Wicked. I've been on the podcast before, but just to recap, I'm a third year PhD at King's College London, and I am a black digital humanist. I'm looking at how black women theorise black identity in closed and open social media spaces, particularly focusing on closed Facebook groups and Twitter. I'll just add as well, we does incredible scholarly <laughs> and activist work and has been working for a long time to really ensure that the creation of syllabus, the creation of um, curricula, accounts for different lived experiences, accounts from different forms of knowledge production and Rhi has been doing fantastic work in the UK to really challenge restrictive notions of what isn't isn't academic work Thank and you, knowledge. Bay. Thank you. <laughs> so that project is called Project Myopia and I also co-edited an anthology about BAME mental health called The Colour of Madness. Yes. Okay, and on to our star. <laughs> no, I don't think so, actually. <laughs> After listening to you two. Well, first, I wanted to say that I am really um, grateful to be here on this native Hawaiian land. It's been a really um, complex relationship, um, especially with ASA being here. I remember uh, when I was in graduate school, listening to native Hawaiian uh, activists and, and mm-hmm. scholars talk about um, only coming to Hawaii by invitation. Mm-hmm. Even though the ASA has been working with Hawaiian activists and scholars, thinking about coming here, bringing the ASA here through this kind of large invite, really taking seriously what it means to be a tourist in a place that is occupied land. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been, I've been really troubled by it for a little bit. So I just want to say that I am thankful to be here and also knowing how troubling my presence is here. So I am a scholar, I'm an ethnic studies scholar in, a, in an English department now. I also teach in black studies. Um, at Michigan State, and um, my first book project, which is also coming out next fall, yes, yes, mm-hmm. it's um, decolonizing diasporas, 
Radical Mappings of Afro-Atlantic Literature. And it is a project that maps and tracks the relationship between the Spanish-speaking Caribbean and diaspora, specifically looking at Afro-Cuban, Afro-Puerto Rican, Afro-Dominican work mm-hmm. written in diaspora in English and Spanish and Spanglish mostly, um, and connecting it to another kind of peripheralized Black Atlantic space that is also um, Hispanophone speaking, or you know, last time that's redundant, um, but is also a Hispanophone nation state, which is Equatorial Guinea. And Equatorial Guinea is the only Sub-Saharan African country that speaks Spanish, and I'm tracking their literature written in diaspora, mm. mostly in, in Castilian and Spanish, um, produced in Spain. Um, and so through that project, I'm just tracking the kind of long history of connection, mm-hmm. thinking about empire and colonialism, specifically focusing on the, the very beginning of these kind of connections between these islands, um, thinking about 19th century connections, but then thinking about what it means to have black people in conversation with one another across diasporic locales, mm-hmm. putting black folks who are often considered as like peripheral um, to blackness, so Spanish speaking, mm. just by nature of the language are considered not often discussed when we're thinking about black studies, yeah. right? There's also kind of this like troubling of their blackness, like they're not really black. <laughs> and so really kind of bringing to the fore uh, this kind of dialogue between Equatorial Guinea and Spanish speaking Caribbean and looking at the lived experience of black people and what their preoccupations are and arguing that if we put them into relation with one another, what we, what we see are these really incredible preoccupations um, and approaches to thinking about decolonization, um, about justice, uh, critiques of coloniality and colonialism and all of that, um, and also race, gender, sex critiques, mm. questions of the body, um, questions of the intimate and all those kinds of things. So that's that first book, um, and it really is taking up mostly like literature, literature and uh, music and some visual images, some other cultural productions. Um, and then I'm working on another project right now, my second book, um, which is specifically on the black Puerto Rican experience. I'm Puerto Rican. Mm-hmm. Um, and so looking at what I'm calling the archive of disappearances, what it means to be black coming from the quote unquote whitest island in the Caribbean mm. um, and how the histories of black people get disappeared mm-hmm. in Puerto Rico, both in the colonial archive and also get kind of cast as the past um, in contemporary discourses, um, kind of like as a folklore or folkloric kind of practice. Um, and then looking at the ways that black Puerto Ricans emerge in the diaspora across a series of different like archival materials, such as like film, photography, um, and other kinds of media. So that's kind of the work I do, but um, I teach, a, a, you know, my work is so very specific, so I teach really widely across a bunch of different things, mm. quite like mostly about thinking <clears throat> about theorizing and thinking about the human um, and branching from there, so yeah. There is so much in there. <laughs> I don't to... mm-hmm. Quick and dirty. I'll, yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll yeah. try, try and hop in. I've, I've got so many questions. Yeah, I sure but, but one that I really wanted to pick up on is you've spoken a lot about blackness and different experiences or identities that are sometimes treated or regarded as existing on the periphery of blackness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I just wanted to hear more about your thoughts on the expansiveness of blackness and lived experiences as black people. So I'm thinking about this conference. For me, one of the most interesting parts of what I've been able to take part in and learn from is discussions to do with how, for example, the you know indigeneity and blackness is not necessarily mutually exclusive. Absolutely. Or you know the experiences of different people from different parts of the world who are often um, regarded as being located solely within whiteness, um, that's not always the case, right? So when we're speaking about blackness, when we're speaking about black experiences, how, through your work, do you push forward these conversations that recognise the the wide range of identities that exist within that? Yeah, um, no, that's a really great question. And I think um, when I'm thinking about um, blackness and the peripheral blackness, right, Mm. um, I'm thinking 
specifically in that first project, I'm thinking about the way that in, for example, Black Studies, um, it is very Anglophone-centric. And there's a mm-hmm. reason for that, right? Like, it is um, kind of born out of a particular scholarly canon. It is preoccupied with these really important discourses. But that um, when we think about who has the largest population of Black people outside of Africa, yeah, it's, it's, it's Brazil. Africa, course, yeah. yeah. Um, and then Colombia. So, like, there's the largest population of Black people outside of Africa speaking Spanish and mm. Portuguese, right? Um, but that when we think about what is Black, we're thinking about oftentimes the U.S. as this kind of point of reference. Blackness. That's a large part of my work as well. Like, I'm very much trying to look into what British Blackness looks like at this point because I feel like we're often constructing our identity in conversation with, but also as a foil to African-American blackness. And it seems like everyone in the diaspora is sort of having to do that. In many that, ways. And I think, well, part of it is not necessarily even, um, <clears throat> you know, I think we need to be really careful about where we're placing the blame on this. We yeah. have to think about the U.S. as this, like, like hegemonic power, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and so what it says about lots of things is what goes, right? Yeah. Um, and so because of that, it overdetermines so much of the conversation mm-hmm. about what is blackness, what is racialization. And so we have for decades, um, hopefully not, any in the recent past but we have scholars from the u.s going to other places and being like the way you think about race is wrong mm. let me tell you how to think about it right um and so we've seen a lot of resistance to that like listen we have our own fucked up logics yeah. your logics are no better right mm. um and so, it's just about trying to shift like the like i just would like to like i'm i feel like i know so much about this and they know so little about ours mm. so like it's getting to this point where i'm like trying to consciously shift my readings to avoid to avoid it and not not to say that that is that their like work and scholarship is any less effective or important it's like literally just like making that conscious decision to say let me focus on something else because someone else is already doing that work better than I possibly could so even just but also like what you're saying about I think again I've picked up on that term you've used like peripherals to blackness Mm -hmm. which is so interesting when you rightfully point out that that is the second largest black population outside of Africa no that's the largest outside of Africa and I was thinking very much about like kind of like how I my work I did I did make the distinction during my work because of my own capabilities that I would be looking at anglophone social media spaces and I know I'm missing so much because of that even just in terms of like European blackness like obviously you um started running the woman of color Cheska you started running the woman of color um so so, so, so for a bit of context and there's this conference that ran that I was invited to be involved in the organising committee of for the first one, which um, Akuhu invited me to be involved in, and it's called Black Feminism, Womanism and the Politics of Women of Colour in Europe, mm-hmm. and something that's been interesting over the years through that conference, and also which is explored in the edited collection, is the different experiences, in particular of black women in Europe, but in various places where, you know, the anglophonic context we're dealing with mm. in Britain is very different mm-hmm. to where they're based, and something I guess we're all continually thinking about, as Rihanna has said, is whose experiences aren't necessarily included as yeah. a result of our emphasis on the English on the speaking, anglophone. whether it's in written text, whether it's at a conference and, and verbally. So maybe there's a question here that connects some of your own work to do with issues related to decoloniality and mm. what we mean when we speak about decolonial approaches, how issues to do with translation and language and culture come into that and any of your thoughts. Because yeah. it was about going there and then like having act- black activists speaking and knowing that you weren't even aware of the things that they were going through until they translated it into English. Right. You know, like you were right there and they're speaking in English and you're like, oh, now I know what's happening over right. there. But the fact that we wouldn't even have any sort of idea because of... Right. So there's there's a few things. So the one thing I wanted to say, well, I want to say one thing about um, politics of women of color, feminism, and the other thing I wanted to say is about curriculum. So don't let me forget. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, when I'm thinking about 
questions of, of blackness and I'm thinking about questions of relationality. The very first chapter of my book, the introduction is called Relations, right? Mm. It's about creating relations across uh, black difference. Mm. Um, and it very much is deep. The entire book is deep in thinking about women of color, feminist thought um, as a point of departure and as a framework. So thinking about um, the ways, like something like the work of Jackie Alexander, when she talks about the crossings, what does it mean that the things that I consume here mean that women of color, someone are doing a particular kind of labor, right? Um, and thinking about the way that she urges us to learn each other's history, mm-hmm. right? When she says that you are not you are not born a woman of color, you become one. Mm-hmm. There's a particular kind of politic. Um, and for me, um, women of color and black feminists have been at the forefront of saying, like, this is really difficult and dirty work mm-hmm. to try to learn each other's histories, to understand that your oppression is not the only oppression, mm-hmm. and that your oppression is necessarily linked and it's like palimpsestic, right? Um, with the oppression of others. And so for me, for example, as being a black woman who is um, a colonial subject, because Puerto Rico is a colony of the United States, mm-hmm. Puerto Rico is a colony of the United States, um, being the daughter of, of immigrants, you know, English is my second language, mm-hmm. um, being a first generation high school graduate, like all of these kinds of things. So like when we're thinking about like race and class, mm-hmm. when I was saying before I have a chip on my shoulder, it's a really big chip on my shoulder. But knowing that all of those things exist on top of the fact that I am living as a colonial subject on settled lands, right, mm-hmm. means that I cannot think about my oppression mm-hmm. as, uh, like, the daughter of dispossessed Puerto Ricans without thinking about <laughs> what that means in this larger scale, dispossessed lands, and thinking about the enslaved bodies there. And that's not even bringing in into the, me being the descendant of slaves as well, right? Yep. Um, so for me, when I'm, when I'm thinking about this kind of work, um, and I'm thinking about the relations between the black diaspora, I'm always bringing this in, and I'm trying to kind of get rid of that idea of like objectivity in the work and saying like, no, no, when I'm talking about relations between black people, I'm talking about it precisely because this is like so tense and so tenuous and so messy, right? That we have to, you have to bring all of this to the work, right? Um, so for me, it's really important um, to kind of take heed and think like, okay, if if black women and women of color in the 1970s and 80s are saying we need to like learn each other's history (laughs) then we need to actually sit down and learn each other's history Mm -hmm. we need to be able to figure out what is fracturing us um and not just only think about um our own struggles i think decolonization and the real work of liberation comes in relating to other people and for me that becomes a really important part of it to that end when i'm teaching something like intro to black studies um in my classes I start with 13th and 14th century, mm-hmm. um, thinking about Spain, thinking about uh, the limpieza de sangre, thinking about all of these kinds of violences, these religious violences that are happening um, in the peninsula, and then thinking about how that spreads to the quote-unquote Americas, the kind of shifting in logics of, of space and time, um, and thinking about the dehumanization of others as part of this larger process. And what I do with my students in that class, rather than just making it solely about African-American blackness, I try to explain to them is that you don't even get to have African-American blackness without going Mm. to, you know, understanding this kind of like fight between like the Catholics and the Jews and the Moors, right? Like, and the indigenous people in the Caribbean, thinking about the expanse of of colonization and slavery in the Caribbean all throughout Latin America. And it's not only till like a hundred plus years later that then you get black slaves in the United States. Mm -hmm. And then as we are doing that class, I am saying like, okay, so this was Jim Crow here. Look at South African apartheid here, Mm -hmm. right? Look at what's going on here. Look at policing here. Let's look at policing in Brazil. Let's look at what's going on with race and XYZ in the North. And then also let's look at Puerto Rico and what's happening there. Mm -hmm. And so it's for me, it's really important to bring them into different parts of the black diaspora to get a sense of race and always telling them that racism and race 
it's nationally specific. At, at a certain mm. point in the semester, I'm like, racism is? Come on. And they're like, nationally specific. You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> like I, we need to get to that point, you yeah. know? And the other thing I do with them, because I want them to know a lot, and I want them to know a lot about a lot of different things and a lot of different forms of resistance, is on the first day of class, I give them, I separate them into groups of four, and I give them, like, a, they can choose out of a bag a name, and the name in there is a movement, like a political movement. So they have anything from, like, the Black Panthers to the Young Lords to the Chicano movement to move mm. to the Mau Mau Rebellion to, right? Like, and so there's 10 different things that they choose, and then throughout the semester, they have to research it and come up with a creative kind of presentation about it and they have to teach their classmates about what this political movement was. Mm. And it's only because I cannot cover everything in the class, yeah. but they also need to learn what it means because they're like, oh man, I got the, I got AIM or I got Chicano movement. Ah, uh, that's not the one I wanted. And it's like, so you yeah. watch. When you learn this, you're going to be lit, right? Yeah, like yeah. <laughs> when you see what actually happened here. Um, and so for them, it's this exciting thing to think about you know, not only relations between black people, but this is an ex- experience or an opportunity for them to see relations between them and, and other people mm-hmm. of color, yeah. right, that are resisting in the same way. Um, so, yeah, so th- that's some of the thoughts I have on that. <clears throat> yeah. That's great. And I was going to say the work of Kristen Smith, um, um, a black woman in Brazil, would be amazing. I mean, just thinking about, yeah, she's at UC Austin. Um, and she wrote a book called Afro Paradise. Um, be, she, her work is really amazing. And her next book is, I think it's something like Sequelae. And thinking about the connections between black women, um, policing, and violence in mm-hmm. Brazil mm-hmm. and in the United States. So bringing, again, that, that diasporic mm-hmm. and relational connection. Mm-hmm. Um, saying it's not enough for mm-hmm. us to just look at ourselves, but look at it in this yeah. kind of larger pattern or sequence. Yeah. I think it's really great that you're doing that with your students from like that early point. Because mm-hmm. like, it's something that I recognize is a bias that hasn't like no one has worked Mm -hmm. to unteach you know at this point you know the idea that they would get this movement and go oh because they've never heard about it before and they don't want to have to everybody wants to be the black panther right like because they don't want to do the extra work they know the black panther is like you know like that's a buzzword that's Mm -hmm. a name that they've heard and they you know Mm -hmm. they they feel like Mm -hmm. they already have some sort of relation Mm -hmm. to it but why shouldn't they feel like they have a relation to these other parallel movements happening elsewhere? And I noticed, like, when I was walking through the book fair here, even, I was looking at stuff and I was like, okay, I've already bought so many books. Mm-hmm. Now I need to go in and look and see what is, like, specifically related to my field. And then I would see something with the title and go, oh, man, but that's not happening to this group of people that I was looking at. And that shouldn't mm-hmm. even be the case. You know, yeah. there was one that had the perfect title mm-hmm. for me, but it was like in like a latino context i was like ah you know what i mean and that's that's ridiculous because that doesn't exclude i'm looking at black people yeah why should the fact that it said latino exclude it's hard but it's part of the training right like it's part of the training like you know you want to you know i was very lucky to be trained i uh, did my phd at berkeley Mm. in ethnic studies and i was really really lucky to do that i didn't know it at the time but i went there and i was like Volta, to California. I was coming from the East Coast and I was like, Puerto Ricans are the mm-hmm. most oppressed people on the planet. Mm-hmm. Nobody understands our struggle, right? Like, <laughs> and I walked in there into this like very diverse cohort mm-hmm. of like, you know, black, Asian, Canadian, you know, like um, indigenous, Pacific Islander folks. Mm. And they were like, girl, you need to relax, you know, like, <laughs> and even the professors, like, I went there wanting to do a particular kind of project, and they were like, it's really cute that you want to do this project on, like, Puerto Rican, whatever, but right now, we're learning about, like, Native American history, and then we're going to learn about Asian American history, then we're going to learn about the XYZ, right, like, then we're going to learn about Latino history, then we're going to look at how it relates to black people, and for me, that, that helped me take several seats mm. and learn and see, like, oh, wow, what someone is talking about, when May Nye is talking about, mm. 
um, you know, the struggle of Asian Americans and when Stephanie Smallwood is talking about slavery and when, you know, someone else is, uh, you know, uh, Norna Silva was talking about like Aloha Betrayed and t- talking about like um, Hawaiian resistance to dispossession, like all of this makes sense and is helpful and enriches mm-hmm. my approach, it enriches my thinking. But not only that, like even if it didn't, even if it had something, nothing to do with what I was doing mm-hmm. whatsoever, it actually helped for me. I always do this when I'm like, it contextualizes things, Absolutely. right? Like then the reach, the intellectual reach that you have, and the way that you can relate to other scholars, mm-hmm. is that much better because you never want to be the person that is like, oh, you're not talking about the exact thing that I want to talk mm-hmm. about. Boring, right? Yeah. Like, oh, it <laughs> doesn't matter. Like worst person, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, and so yeah. Um, I'm. I'm always trying to do that, especially with my grad students, like mm. expand what they're reading and what they're like, but I don't really know if I want to take this class because I'm doing this very specific project and yeah. all your books are not about that project. I'm yeah. like, sit down. They you know? <laughs> yeah. No, that's a great yeah. thing. and something I definitely mm-hmm. want to like think about incorporating into mm-hmm. my own teaching right now. Yeah. Like that sounded mm-hmm. really wonderful. Yeah. I have, um, sorry to that end. I have mm. a colleague, uh, Tamara Butler, who does work on South, the South Carolina sea islands mm. um, and thinking about black women and land. And she's been doing this work. She's from John's Island. It's been kind of recovering this kind of like Gullah Geechee women's relationship to the land. Mm. Um, and I had, there was a, there's a book called Chicana Movidas. And it's like this book of these like Chicana decolonial moves and this mm. research. And there's a chapter there about like um, unpacking your mother's archive. And I was like, this is really interesting. I am going to um, like just scan it and give it to her because I know she's like, just doing that. Mm-hmm. Even though it's like a Chicana, Latina kind of context. And then all of a sudden she's like, I have a new chapter. It's so helpful that you gave me this because now I'm thinking about my mother's like family mm-hmm. reunion t-shirt collections, right? Like, and this is the, the thing, yeah. you know? So I was like, this is a cool, you know? Mm-hmm. Wicked. Yeah. I, I was just about to say like this, that part of the conversation has led us really neatly to something that I think the listeners will really want to hear. You started out by saying, talking about the troubled relationship between tourism and settler colonialism in Hawaii and sort of evaluating how you felt being here and going around here. I know that we've been struggling with that a lot. Um, like with the tour you went to yesterday. Yeah, we, I went on a fantastic tour yesterday with uh, another scholar who's with us, um, Keisha Bruce, who's a PhD student at Nottingham. And we were just learning more about you know contemporary gentrification here. We were learning more about um, you know struggles in relation to TMT. You know, we were just learning a lot more about what is often erased, and mm-hmm. um, particularly within you know academic contexts when we're we're thinking about places that we're in, but without necessarily engaging with the people who are here all the time and who are struggling in many ways um, against you know systemic forms of oppression. So it, it would be good to hear more of your your thoughts on how we have these conversations as scholars, but also we we ensure that they're not confined to conventional academic spaces. Mm-hmm. We ensure that we're learning from different people different communities but also in a way that's very much on their terms and in in a way that is not sort of peering in anthropologically Mm. and to with this touristic gaze that can perpetuate colonialism right right um no i agree it's something that i've struggled with and actually my sister has said to me so many times uh, she's just like oh you and and she's talking about my partner you and tukuma haven't done anything Mm. you guys haven't done anything and i'm just like no i know (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we're like trying to figure out you know what is that what is that line what is that space you know I know my sister who is a veteran of the navy went to Pearl Harbor and she didn't invite me just because you know she's very liberal in her in her politics 
but I'm actually quite radical, and so we don't agree necessarily on everything, you know? Mm-hmm. And so she was like, I'm going to go, and I'm not even inviting you. Like, I don't, I don't need you to dampen my parade, you know? Right. Like, um, uh, and so it is really interesting because I am not surrounded, like, at this conference, I'm not surrounded by academics. I'm surrounded with my family. Mm-hmm. And so necessarily the conversations have to be really different. Um, and so um, what's interesting is, on the one hand, it takes me away from some of the more pressing conversations that are happening here. But on the other hand, it's allowing me to have really important conversations with my family mm-hmm. About precisely thinking about race and place and dispossession, and even thinking and kind of shaking some of the kind of foundational ideas. Like my families are, are not academic. Some of the foundational ideas that they have about even themselves in the world, right? Like um, one of the things that I caved into yesterday was that my family wanted to go to the Polynesian Cultural Center. It's about an hour drive. It's really interesting. We yeah, I really too. had no idea what it was, but it's kind of like a theme park. Yeah, we went with like all of these like I, like these islands being kind of portrayed and yeah. And so students I'm, earning money for their, yeah. just to, for context for the viewers, listeners, the, the Polynesian Cultural Centre um, in, like, on the island of Oahu, where we are, is, like, a space where all 100% of the tickets, uh, ticket prices go towards funding the student volunteers who largely run the place funding their uh, college education university education yeah. um, at the neighbouring university at the of BYU of Hawaii Brigham Young University which is very interesting which is an yeah. interesting space because it's like also largely funded by the Mormon church, church. Yeah. that is just moments away yeah. so they also have a very strong presence in the cultural centre which I was quite yeah they had the settler by. like um, mission and yeah. all that stuff and I was just really blown away by that yeah um so yes yeah, so i went there um with uh, the family um they went earlier today we went later and they meet up with them and it was really such mm-hmm. a strange space such a strange space not what so i expected mm-hmm. there were some you know at the same time that i you know it, it's really interesting especially for those of us who are like who are uh first generation scholars uh mm-hmm. and and like coming with these kind of really complex histories to this other space like and also like what graduate school does to you which is like you have a knee-jerk critique of everything right mm-hmm. yeah um <laughs> and, and, and then the flip side what graduate school does to people in terms of needing to finance it right yeah right for, yeah for the students working in that space i know a question we kept coming back to is what does it mean or what is it like to perform. to work there and, and, to, perform and to perform your culture to, to this largely white audience. audience yeah so we felt very like as a group of like well black and one asian scholars in there we were like is this for us are we is this i i felt very like i felt strange the whole way through i really wanted to like stop and talk to them and be like are you okay yeah (laughs) is everything okay i was thinking like oh this is kind of like a six flags like a theme like a reason park or like a um something but at the same time i was like really like my niece who's in the room who's an artist but then you want to show them what you're doing Wow. She's an amazing visual nice. artist. She's going to school. Um, she's going to college next year to study art. Congratulations. Congrats. Um, <laughs> um, but she was there and she had a really... Um, do you mind if I talk about this, Alana? It's okay. Had a really powerful experience um, uh, when we went into one of the, um, one of the kind of spaces and we were at um, the kind of... Um, the kind of chief's house in the kind of part of the thing that was like Fiji and they had these sculptures mm. and it was these sculptures of like black Polynesian Polynesian people with mm-hmm. like afros like sculpted yeah. out of wood and all this stuff and my niece had a had a um, really intense emotional reaction to that as someone who is taking sculpture class right now mm-hmm. it has not been shown people of color in, oh. her, in her art mm-hmm. 
making. This and is something very experienced, like very yeah. similar experience to what my sister's going through right now. She's yeah. also an artist and she also works with sculpture and she's been focusing largely on like um, portraying like women of colour's bodies and larger bodies as well. Like she's sculpt- carving them out of candles and things like that. And yeah. it's all very beautiful stuff. Yeah. And like she's like think toying with the idea of like allowing people to um, send her like nudes and then she'll sculpt you mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And this yeah. has been like going to the centre. I had felt very similar and like being on the island as well I've just been loving seeing these like larger bodied thick thighed you know sculptures and this thing it's been so wonderful to see like such a stark difference to like when you're going somewhere else and you see all the Grecian slim yeah you know I just found it really wonderful and so there's like a um, I don't know I think we gotta think about the ways that we move we move through the world right Mm. Um, and so many like burst into tears at the sight of this um, uh, sculpture is my partner <laughs> um, uh, at the sight of this um, this sculpture and for me that was a really powerful moment right even though we're in this really weird theme park right like yeah. um, because it shows a potential a different way of seeing what is there, mm-hmm. right? And so, but we can't assume that everyone that's walking in there are thinking no. about this, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's what's kind of thing. But I think one of the things that many said that for was that was really kind of powerful to me is she was she was upset about the kind of erasure, right? Yeah. Like mm-hmm. of the things not only in her education, but the kind of erasure of this idea like people of color do not exist. Mm-hmm in the training of art or she probably won't yeah. even get to that until her third or fourth year of college that's so true years away from now you know yeah that's um, something that you, and also when you do get to it, it becomes something you have to seek out yourself and not something that becomes the core of the mm-hmm. curriculum i have a huge gripe mm-hmm. about this like yeah. that's pretty much where mm-hmm. project myopia came from mm-hmm. that like we all had to seek out mm-hmm. our own representations oh yeah we're we accessories, to, study to, the, accessories you know, to, yeah. the, to the academic experience for Absolutely. sure but also like similarly as you mentioned like the fiji like the fijian area i found it Whenever we had like a tour guide, I thought it was um, quite interesting how like sardonic they were the whole way through. I don't know if you st- like went to all of the, I don't, yeah, but of course. Yeah. So like when we went to Fiji, like I, I just liked the tone that they all struck. Yeah. Like it almost, I didn't get to stop and like corroborate this because you're kind of, you're the whole day is running around. You're yeah. literally running around from performance to performance, but there was something about a couple of them, like when we were on that boat, for instance, where they kind of like this really like gentle mockery the whole way through. I don't know That's if I'm. Pretty funny. I wonder if I'm projecting. No, but, but I there thought... was one thing we saw. Like my cousin was really interested in seeing the coconut oil. Yeah. Um, making and then me and my niece caught it and it was really funny because they were like, "Did you go see it in Samoa?" Because that's where really, like, they were doing the coconut opening Samoa. Mm. We take it here. Do you want to know how we make the oil? Let me tell you real quick. You go put like this, you put it in the dark for, like, three weeks, and then you just whip it out. People are like, I have a question. And he's like, <laughs> yes. he's like you put it on your cut, you put it on your body, but you don't eat it. That's it. <laughs> Goodbye. It's really? it was amazing. It's, that was the feeling that <laughs> we got. Amazing. Exactly. And lots of them had that. And I was yeah. like, are the white people here getting, getting this? Yeah. Are they, like, because like, it, 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 yeah. it made me feel a bit better, you know? Yeah. Like, it was... And so, there's something about the, like, there's a particular kind of, of what I felt, especially when I went to the, because I didn't, we got there so late that we didn't get to do much. Mm. Um, but we got to the Fijian kind of area, and my favorite part was, like, walking in. 
um, to there was like one of the like the old folks home right yeah. um, and the guy that was there like we were walking and he saw us and he came and kind of gave us like a little nod he was like yeah this is it that's what <laughs> I'm saying like, this yeah, happened to he was like, he was like yeah we're Fijians we're like everyone else with, you know we're just darker we think the darker the better like, he was like we think we're more beautiful than the others we're Melanesian mm-hmm. and Polynesian you know kind of like opened yeah. up that conversation about these like really arbitrary yeah like, what is Polynesian and what is Melanesian like yeah. these distinctions that have been put on them and stuff oh, it was, it was just, I just thought it was great my favourite part was, was like we were walking and he was like this is like the old people's home the kids hang out here you know it's like a Fijian uh, it was like what did he say it's like a old school version of a, of a pre-k like a yeah. kindergarten <laughs> amazing and I was like, so yeah, like great thank and, you and very you much let me get out of here get out of here you when know? we were at Samoa and he was talking about stuff like he really just had like he was he was loving it the guy who had us like in the palm of his hand he was like talking to us for about 20-30 minutes about like the like just a little bit like he was talking about the respect for women that they have and stuff like that and you know having a grand old time with a captive audience basically and there was this one point that I really enjoyed remember we talked about it when he brought up uh, he was talking about something and then he brought up Facebook mm-hmm. and I think it was a moment I think like sometimes I worry about these places like what I worry about and that the fact that there's this like largely white audience is like are they trying are they coming in there and going to think that they're going to see some like first of all they're participating in something very noble and then also mm-hmm. that they're in there to see the noble savage or something right. you know like people in their like native dra- you know are they right. going in there thinking that these people are in a little time capsule in the past mm, right. or are they going in there mm-hmm. to talk about the fact that like the way that this is like mm-hmm. continuing and indigeneity and contemporary like politics and, and so thinking on. i mean thinking about this in relationship it's not the same but thinking about the kind of plantation tours in the united yes. states right like and the, the kind mm-hmm. of ways that like the white audience um white participants are going to the plantation to kind of get this romantic yeah you get all these plantation weddings that are happening now right <laughs> like um and Blake really Lively. are upset are really upset at the mention of slavery when they go to the plantation yes like this is not what we came here for and that's something that my students and i have been talking about for a little mm-hmm. while there's this show on youtube it's all a bit older now it's um az dengue's show called um ask a slave have you seen it no and it was uh during her time as an actor she was a reenactor um, at the Washington's, uh, George Washington's, uh, uh, plantation. Um, and so she was the, the personal slave to the, wa- mm-hmm. to Mary Washington. Right. So this black woman is like, I was a slave reenactor yeah. and I'm going to, for the mm-hmm. show, reenact the stupid questions that people would ask me. Yeah. Um, and so I had my season, my students watch either one or one mm-hmm. or the other I've season of it. Um, and you know, some of them were like, it was kind of funny and it, but it was like really upsetting. The other people were like, it was not funny at all. Mm-hmm. And I'm like furious. And I was like, okay, let's talk about like, what is, mm-hmm. what is the trouble with the kind of uh, like the, the, the plantation, mm-hmm. these kinds of tours that ask us to erase blackness from them yeah. and to like feed the white imagination, mm-hmm. the kind of fragile mm-hmm. and, um, innocent, the desiring of innocence, right? Yeah. Of, of a simpler time. Yes. Um, and the so there's, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So there's and I'm, I'm just thinking of a couple of questions which I feel connects to a lot of that. So one of them that's been in my mind throughout this conversation is how we think about the, these different experiences and we think about um, sort of connections between different identities whilst also reckoning with the reality that anti-blackness can exist within spaces that are framed as being for people of colour mm-hmm. or for women of colour. So just any of our, our thoughts today 
on what it means to, to struggle with that, struggle against that, thinking a bit about colorism in relation to this as well. So even when we were speaking about that particular space, um, you know, it, there were conversations to do with what it meant to be um, from different parts of the world, to be lighter skinned, to be darker skinned, what that means in the setting we're in right now, what that means in relation to scholarship to do with blackness, mm. um, and just any of your thoughts on how scholarship to do with race, class, and in particular the experiences of black people of African descent has or hasn't changed in recent years. Yeah. One of the things that I'm thinking about, and, and I don't know enough to talk about the thinking about Hawaii specifically, I am thinking about the kinds of conversations that I've been having with my students and even having in my scholarship around questions of blackness and troubling blackness and belonging to blackness, right? And it goes back to the very first thing I was talking about of like blackness that is like peripheralized and the kinds of ways that colorism falls into that. So on the one hand, for example, I've been talking to my students about Cardi B nice. and um, Nicki Minaj. You know, I have half of the students that are like, that bitch is not black. She's just riding the wave of blackness, blah, blah, blah. I did a presentation for them and I was like, I put up a photo of them side by side and I'm like, who's black and who isn't? And what makes Cardi B not black to you, mm. right? And part of it is because she's Dominican. Mm-hmm. Part of it is because she speaks Spanish, right? And then I was like, um, but... Nicki Minaj is like Trinidadian and they're like well that's black and I was like well Cardi B's half Trinidadian and they were like oh and I'm like they're the same they're the same color skin yeah right like so what is it that makes it impossible for this person to be black right you know and so I'm really working with my students to to think about that I'm not trying to cajole them into thinking one thing or the other but really complicating what they think about what it means to be black and I think we're having a conversation now and shifting thinking about Afro-Latinidad and one of the things that has been really important but also frustrating is that, I'm going to say this in the most tactical way possible, Latino studies is very white-centered. Mm-hmm. So thinking about mestizaje, mm-hmm. thinking about kind of the lighter spectrum of what it means to be Latino, Latinx, mm-hmm. right? And then Afro-Latinidad becomes a kind of this peripheral mm-hmm. part of Latino studies. And at the same time that we have scholars, white Latinx scholars doing work on Afro-Latinidad that get a lot more play or are more recognized for doing the work. Mm-hmm. And then when you have like Black Latina scholars, I'm part of a collective called Black Latinas No, one of the things that we kind of face is kind of like, well, just because you're Black, you're not like the authority on Afro-Latina mm-hmm. studies or on Afro-Latinidad or like, that's really cute, but you have to make sure that if you're doing that work, you need to cite these like white scholars or these mm-hmm. white Latinx scholars to do that work, right? Mm-hmm. And so for us, it's thinking about like, how do we come up against anti-blackness? Mm-hmm. Even when we're thinking about like not only in black studies, mm-hmm. <laughs> but also in Latinx studies, mm-hmm. right? Like, um, how do we come up against that? And then also questions of like who gets to be in and who gets yeah. to be out on Afro-Latina, which is a conversation that I don't really like because it falls a lot of times into policing by phenotype. Mm-hmm. You know, as soon as that conversation starts, like, well, she's not really, and this and I'm like, do 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 the backwards <laughs> walk. I'm like, I can't because it's too mm-hmm. complex, and mm-hmm. sometimes I wish I would like jump in because sometimes it's really clear cut. But yeah, so there's a lot of that. But then what happens is that, you know, it's not a zero-sum game, right? Yeah. Like, but there's uh, some folks who are like really, really phenotypically and have a, like a lived white experience who are like, well, I have black ancestry mm-hmm. and I'm like Afro-Latina mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and then everybody's like oh my god like what am I gonna do now you know what yeah. I'm saying and, and like, then everyone is like everyone's trying to jump mm-hmm. on this bandwagon and then it negates everyone else's work mm-hmm. right like and it shouldn't right but I guess that's the Twitter times we're living in you know mm-hmm. so yeah. I don't know that's a way around that's a mm-hmm. whole convoluted answer to a question I'm not even sure it was an answer to your question it, it so, was yeah. that's a, okay. a super helpful answer and I feel like you're, you're really bringing up some of these difficulties in terms of 
you know, doing work about being part of conversations and communities whereby how people's identities are experienced, how they look can be very different. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it feels as though we're speaking about the need to avoid policing blackness and policing black identities whilst also recognising the complex differences between people, right? So mm-hmm. colorism is, is pervasive within society within the academy and you know for 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 someone as perhaps a, a black light skins person to claim a certain experience and often to do it in a way that might undermine the experience of somebody who's darker skinned that that is very much something that we can't shy away from from dealing with and, and naming and speaking about whilst also recognizing that black people look many different ways to be black can be experienced in a, in a whole host of different ways absolutely mm-hmm. absolutely you know i have like a running joke with my partner who's there who's african-american and i'm always laughing because i'm like you know i have a particular kind of i, I have like a new york accent you know like it's inflected with all of these not only east coast but like immigrant kind of language and english is a second language thing my blackness gets questioned a lot right not necessarily where i am in the midwest now in the mm-hmm. midwest it's a very kind of black and white kind of place mm-hmm. but everywhere else I've, I've lived it's been that kind of thing where like oh you're spanish is the like mm-hmm. is the um interesting is the short that would happen yeah. in the uk that's the question I that's think, a good question and I, th- and I think it would depend where in the uk because yeah. we speak a lot about is you know, we've both been in Scotland, we've yeah. both been in England, I'm now in Wales, and depending on which part of the UK and, wh- and how many black people you're likely to find in mm. that city or part of the city, the way people respond to your identity, the questions they have about it can be very different. Yeah. Yeah. So with me, now that I'm outside of Scotland, my accent seems to be the first um, point of interest before I get the comments which make it clear in terms of how people are racialising me. Right. Whereas in Scotland, where you're not going to find, say, nearly as many black people as you are mm. in perhaps certain cities in England, um, your your black identity or blackness is read in very different ways. Right. There's a much more there's a real flattening of the differences mm-hmm. between how black people live and between their cultural background, I would say, in some of those parts of the UK. So I think I feel everything yeah. that's been said today comes back to your point about the national specific yeah. or, or, you know, the co- regionally, ge- re- yeah. regionally geoculturally specific nature of race, racism, black experiences. And yeah. that's why your book is going to be so vital yeah. and so important. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's why your work as well is going to yeah. shed so much light on what's happening on, in the UK and how that relates to around the world. Yeah. Mm. Well, I was going to say, um, my partner is lighter skinned than I am, right? And mm. I'm always making this joke, like, I'm 12 shades darker than you, right? <laughs> like, 11 people could stand between us, you know? It's <laughs> just, um, like, not necessarily true, but close, right? Um, <laughs> And 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 what I laugh about is like you know that his blackness is never questioned like yeah. whatsoever right but for me it's like this giant question mark and I'm like I just can't believe this I'm just blacker than you you yeah. know what I mean like and so that's our that's like my running joke about, about it yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's really important to I mean thank you for sharing that because I think it makes so much sense mm. and that relation between how people are racialized you know one of the things that I develop in the book is um, what I'm calling the critical cartographies of racialization mm. which is precise framework that is allowing me to say I'm gonna put Afro-Latinx Caribbean people into relation with Equatorial Guinea, mm-hmm. even though some folks are like, you know, what Ngugi Wathiongo calls something torn and new, right? Mm-hmm. Like these Afro-descendant people, mm-hmm. and some people are African, right? Like, and there's no way to be like comparing them. Like, mm-hmm. comparing them doesn't work, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so the critical criteria of racialization are really thinking about like the kind of phenomenology and um, and the kind of like ontogeny, right? Mm-hmm. Like these kinds of experiences, um, and saying like, well, in Equatorial Guinea, I have to think about how people are different ethnic groups, and they're like, you know, Benga and Dowe, mm-hmm. they're Fang, they're Bubi, whatever. And those are very specific ethnic groups with very specific kind of histories and hierarchies within that mm-hmm. nation state that matter and they have their own languages etc cetera, etc cetera. but that when they go to Spain they are racialized mm-hmm. as black right and so really trying to think about the way that when you move the way that you're racialized is moved right mm-hmm. it, it changes 
It's the same thing with the Spanish speaking Caribbean. Our logics of racism, of racialization, <laughs> Freudian slip there. Um, our logics of racism are based on mestizaje, right? Racial mixing, mm-hmm. which comes out with a thousand different categories for mm-hmm. what you possibly could be. None of them are black unless you're really black, 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 mm-hmm. right? Um, it's always a move towards whiteness. It's always a move mm-hmm. towards bettering the race, right? In the Spanish um, speaking world. Um, but then when that that like migration to the United States to this Anglo world where hypodescent is the rule, the one drop rule, it means that people are like mind boggled when they go from a place where they're like, I'm not black, I'm trigueña, or I'm not yeah. black, I'm, you know, morena or whatever. And you go to a place where it's like, you're black or white. <laughs> like yeah. you got one, right? And so really thinking about how that shifts, right? Like depending on where you go. And for me, the, that critical cross of racialization is what helped me hold place mm-hmm. to say like, okay, just, just come with me here. And then like, now from here, we can go to the rest of the book. But just know that I'm not trying to collapse these kinds of differences, you know? I just wanted to say this other thing, which is, like, I was doing field work in Spain many years ago. And when I went there, I was by myself. And it was, I was going to Spain first and then to Equatorial Guinea to collect interviews with writers. I was being, you know, treated really terribly. I was in Madrid, and then I went to Barcelona. So I was in Madrid, and people yeah, wouldn't talk to me. There, yeah. People would, like... <laughs> I'd give someone money and they'd like tap the counter so I could put it down. They didn't want to take it from my hands. Um, I'd ask people questions in the street and like people would be like, no me hables, like don't talk to me. And I'd be like, what the hell's going on here? And it wasn't until I went to Barcelona that I met with this older woman who's an editor and a writer from Equatorial Guinea there. And she was telling me, oh, nena, how's, how's Madrid, XYZ? And um, I was telling her, well, you know, Reme, like it's been really bad. I've been like, mm-hmm. re- I've been, I'm alone and people are treating me really mean. And she was like, oh, my darling. And she was like, oh, you just want to, they think you're a prostitute. She was like, you speak with a Caribbean, like a Spanish-Caribbean accent. You're black. For them, that's all you are. And so obviously no one's going to want to talk to you in public in the daytime. Oh. Right? And it took another black woman who's from Spanish-speaking Africa, who's a, like now a citizen of Spain because she left there as a, as a young person who's been there for the majority of her life to tell me and to be able to sit with me because people most of the people that I was talking to I would like I'm like am I crazy mm-hmm. like or are people treating me like this and be like oh no you know Spain is whatever and it just took another black woman to be like no listen this is yeah. what's happening and that was really helpful because on the one hand she was able to relate to what mm-hmm. I was saying talk to me honestly about the experience mm-hmm. and not brush it away like you're mm-hmm. just making it up it helped me to equip myself to go back out in public mm-hmm. and to not have this because I was going in there like full boricua like hey like really oh people were like oh no not today you know so then i was like you know what you don't get any of this yeah right and so then now when i go to spain to do this kind of work i have a very different i have like a spain personality and it is not like this right Right. thinking about race and space i really thought that that was a good moment to bring in what you came to talk to asa about jessica really so some of what i came to speak uh, about and as part of our panel with Rihanna and with Keisha Bruce, we've been focusing, each of us really have been working for a number of years on issues to do with um, digital space, black identities, digital blackness, and particularly experiences of black women and um, black non-binary people in the case of Resort, which focuses on closed social media spaces. And it's really fantastic stuff. And I was speaking a bit about this rise of what has sometimes been dubbed the interracial YouTube video blogger influencer scene whereby there's lots of conversations to do with to do with race to do with blackness the and lots swirl. Of, the swirl swirl influencer scene which I, I see it as really being sort of bolstered by essentially very colorist based market logics and um, that often focus on in proximity to whiteness even when we're seeing black people depicted right so some of what I've observed in the YouTube space is the creation of um, content that depicts couples, that depicts families, and um, which really emphasizes this 
unnerving message of love trumps hate, post-racial space, because we are seeing quite often pairings whereby there's a black spouse, there's a white spouse, and it's very much promoting the closer you are to lightness, to whiteness, this white aspirational identity, the more we should celebrate these these setups. So any any thoughts on that? Oh, yeah. yeah, any thoughts on that would be great. Yeah, and, and, and I think also what's worrying for me is how that sort of content is sometimes dismissed as just being entertaining. Yeah. But I feel as though it is used to shut down conversations to do with colorism, to do with anti-black racism. Um, I, I think it can be a vehicle to pretty unnerving political positions that deny the realities of racism today, including in, in the US, including globally. Right, I mean, and I think they're also seeing that, they're also celebrated, right? These kind yes. of, the mixed race family in the Cheerios commercial, mm-hmm. right? And the backlash. That yeah, was, and the backlash yeah. to it. People are like, I can't believe you're promoting such mm-hmm. a nation, right? Like, or mm-hmm. whatever. But We had to close yeah. the comment section on the video for that. Because right. Of it. Yeah. The kinds of ways that it is celebrated as a way to say, like, we've, we're going to move beyond race by, I mean, and it's like such a, like, movement baby kind of model, right? Mm-hmm. Like, we're going to mix and then this is going to get better. So what's really funny is um, I've been trying to write a paper, an article for the last, no lie, five years, but it's just not my primary work. So I, it's, just on the, it's on the periphery. It's on the, it's on the back burner. Um, but it's, a, it's an a article that I think is going to be called Caramel and Queer mm-hmm. because it is uh, precisely a reflection on some of these kinds of um, thinking about the mis- mixed race logic, thinking like especially thinking about it from the U.S. perspective. So we have this idea that there's like racial mixing is going to be the cure to the cure mm-hmm. to what ails us, right? Absolutely. And so you see that in um, the kind of seeking of these like, kind of ethno-ambiguous mm-hmm. figures and models and um, spokespeople and, you know, people who are promoted, right? Like um, in media and television spaces. And for me, it was really troubling. There was two things that like prompted me to think about this paper. One, I was preparing my class on, um, I was preparing a graduate seminar that is called From the Entrance of the Monster, which takes up and troubles the kind of Jose Martí's uh, uh, proclamation um, in 1895 that there is no race hate mm. because there is no there's no race in Latin America. So it's like the, this big proponent of mestizaje, right? Mm. So on the one hand, I was dealing with that um, as a framing for our grad class that was going to prove it wrong throughout the entire like 20th century. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, I was watching Broad City, this mm-hmm. this comedy show mm-hmm. on Comedy Central, and it's these two young Jewish girls who are in New York, just recent college grads, just struggling to make it by. It's actually quite funny. Um, but in one of the episodes, um, they get locked out of their house, and then they go into a neighbor's house. They get like let into their neighbor's house because they lock Smith is really creepy and they don't want to tell him which house they live in and when they're there they realize they've like been led into like this dominican family's home um they don't know that but i can tell by the accent of the people when they come home right like mm-hmm. so they're like this like non um descriptive like latino family and they're seeing all these photos and they have all these little tchotchkes around the house and the one uh girl on the show is like oh i just feel so bad like you know, we don't even know our neighbors. Look at this, this beautiful, this beautiful family. Like gentrification. Like we are, we're the problem. Like we're the problem. And then she like takes like a hot second. You know, skips a beat and is like, you know what? But it doesn't matter because in ten years we're all going to be caramel and queer, right? Oh. <laughs> and it's fine, right? Like so. This oh, <laughs> this, this yeah. paper has to be written. Oh. This, this paper has to be written. It is this, like so. Yeah. It is like it's only. I have like ten pages of it for literally the last five years. So then. Um, so then I'm thinking about, so I've been thinking about this, and then there was also, like, this, like, fake, um, there was, like, a social media, like, um, 
a commercial that was like for this fake thing that was like woo woo, right? Like they were gonna come up with this thing woo woo and like do you have a social media person that or a social media network that's gonna help you get out mm-hmm. the word? And so they were like, Yeah, we're gonna come up with this thing, woo woo, and all we need is this thing and this thing. We need someone to do this and we need an ethno ambiguous spokesperson as they're getting into the elevator and the elevator closes, right? And I'm just like, Okay, so we have this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But honestly, like this is like talk about myopia. I'm like the United States is neighbors to the rest of the Americas. You know what I mean? We're like, literally the South racial America. mixing Jesus. project is the project. Yeah. And has been the project for hundreds of years. Mm. And it has not worked. Mm. Right? So why do you think that you're coming up with A, something new, mm. and two, something that's going to solve your problem, right? Like, and so for me, this is the kind of the question that I have. But again, it's like on the side of the side or the back burner of the project that I have. Yeah, yeah. It's just something that I'm salty about, you know, yeah. like I'm salty about it. So I'm just gonna, I want to write about it later. That also like just links straight back neatly into the idea that people aren't paying attention to stuff that isn't happening in an Anglophone country. Like right. we have so much evidence of the fact that this is one, not new, and two, hasn't worked, mm-hmm. that so many people just are not aware of. Right. And I don't understand why. Mm-hmm. Like, because that is something that you hear all the time in the UK mm-hmm. as well. Like, oh, eventually it will be olive coloured and everything will be okay. And <laughs> right. da, 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 da. Like, it's this really mm-hmm. pervasive myth Absolutely. that exists mm-hmm. that yes. is so easily mm-hmm. and quickly disproven, mm-hmm. but no one does it. Mm-hmm. Right. I think we're just going to... I have one last question before we wrap up and we should just turn it right back to the ASA. We've had such a... You're mm-hmm. also lucky to hear this. You're lucky. But <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask, how have you found the ASA this year... And how it uh, opened up to both of you. And you. Know, you. <laughs> how has it connected to your work? What brings you to this space in particular? Would you like to start, Cheska? Yeah, so I'll, I'll start by saying what brings me to this space not only is you and, and Keisha Bruce, <laughs> um, it's the opportunity to, to be in conversation with other people who are invested in learning more about and understanding different issues, in particular to do with the experiences of black people and in different parts of the world. Mm. So obviously our panel, we focus on issues to do with digital blackness, but sometimes people treat the dig- you know, digital spaces or what's sometimes referred to as the digital world as separate from offline environments in a way which I think is really helpful so coming to a conference or coming to a space like ASA has been a really important opportunity to learn about different histories different experiences and to make connections between spaces and conversations that sometimes exist in very separate spaces or Mm. or in very separate ways and I think the best part of this has been learning about in particular the experiences of black people the the history of different types of indigenous organizing Mm. grassroots activism that's happening right here right now and which I, I, I wonder how many people are particularly aware of or how many people are actively trying to, to learn about. Just as you've said, I'm thankful to be in this space, but I also, and I know we've spoken about this a lot the last few days, we can't move past thinking critically about what it means for us to be able to be here mm-hmm. and what our presence does to this space and does to the people who will still be in this space when we leave. Yeah. I've certainly found this like a really productive space for me because the conversations about digital blackness are very rich when you're out in the States and are reaching like a point that we have a lot of ground to cover. Mm -hmm. Obviously being here also makes me very reflective on what's going on back home and how we can uh, make sure that these conversations begin to include um, other types of blackness across the diaspora because you do notice that people sort of tend to switch off when it comes to talking about, oh, but we have something, we have different stuff where we are. But then again, being like remembering that we are still in a privileged position as 
you know, in taking part in these conversa conversations, being from an anglophone uh, speaking discourse as well. So, yeah, yeah, I've been finding it really nice to be here, really nice to be in the com company of other black women scholars, which isn't something that I get to do very often mm -hmm. where I am. Um, and I felt that more than what I've learned at the conferences and panels here, I've been having the best conversations when I'm at a, our kitchen table, mm -hmm. when we're typing yes. up our notes and doing our work and when we're walking around the island and on the beach, like those have been the places where, and conversations like this, like the opportunity to step out and do a podcast like this have been the places where I've had the best conversations. Cause you know, obviously you don't edit yourself in the same mm -hmm. way that you do when you're giving your panel, it's easier to, have a, like a more of a dialogue mm -hmm. as opposed to giving a paper and so on and I've been really thinking a lot about how to incorporate some of the better parts of these kitchen table conversations into any future work or any future collaborations that we do thinking mm -hmm. about like conferences and how to make them more accessible to people who don't find it as easy to listen and take in the notes and also to change up that culture of academia where we're all very precious about our work and trying to make sure that we can share without stealing and, <laughs> and so on yeah but, yeah i mean to that end i just i still don't think that academics know what round tables are nope yeah, yeah they do not. <laughs> on the low low oh, oh yeah we mean, need an yeah. intervention i think an that, intervention just thinking about like what we came here to do so our panel myself keisha and cheska we were supposed to be taking part I think we were one of the only people in the conference who chose to do that different style of presentation sort of what was exhibition it or experimental but then the room we were put in was not conducive to doing oh, that oh it never is yeah. yeah so we had like posters and things that people couldn't get up and I saw your poster you loved my poster I loved your poster so much I was talking about leg washing <laughs> yeah the, the leg washing Twitter debates, which is uh, very fun. Excellent. <laughs> are you going to elaborate a little bit? Okay, I will. <laughs> I will. So I'm, uh, I've been looking at how I'm going to scrape the platforms to look at like discourses that happen in specifically in Black Twitter and how they compare to discourses that happen in closed spaces like Facebook groups. And one of the examples I was using to practice some critical technocultural discourse analysis, as as, yeah, as created by Andre Brock in uh, 2018. And I was using it to look at um, leg washing, which was uh, has become a thing that stands in for whiteness. So we talk about whiteness in a way that no longer uses the word white, but instead it's people who do or don't wash their legs, people who do or don't season their food, and a way that we do that in order to evade the ways that platforms um, um, dampen black dialogue. Okay, I think at this point, it's a good moment for us to, a baby. <laughs> to wrap up and, and yes. say, I, I, I think what we're all trying, trying to really get at is this has been a fantastic part of being here, these conversations yeah. right now, learning from different people here, those involved in the Ad Home Intentionally, di Digital Intentionally Black conference last year. And more importantly, we both just want to say thank you so much thank for making the time so to, to speak to us. We've learned so much yes and i know we've both made notes throughout yep the last thing i think is when is your book coming out what is it called and where can it be gotten okay it's coming out next fall i think september october it's coming out with uh, northwestern university press northwestern um, university press decolonizing diasporas radical mappings of afro-atlantic literature yeah and thank you for inviting me to come talk to y'all i've i've learned so much i'm so excited for everyone's break your book is coming out next fall when's your book coming out so by at the latest winter maybe yeah. autumn and um, but yeah that'll be out next year the digital lives of black women in britain yes and 
I know that there are so many pieces of work in the pipeline for Rihanna as well. So it's an exciting time. It's an exciting time. No, but yeah, and um, um, yeah, the ASA is, is a really um interesting space and has gotten a lot more radical, a lot more black in the last few years, and that makes it, I think, just a really wonderful. Um, space. So thank you. I'm so glad we were able to meet here. We met Yay. last year at Hilt, at Hilt. And so this is, or a year and a half ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, but thank you. We're really glad to see you again. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you to our listeners. Thank you for listening to the Spotlight series. If you're interested in hosting an episode, get in touch. <laughs>